today we're going to be taking a look at Psalm 35, and I also mentioned it's an imprecatory psalm. Uh, there's, it's really two psalms, I, I shouldn't say two psalms, but two natures of the same psalm here. One is that it is a lament song, so it's expressing David's utter sorrow, uh, he's lamenting. And then there's also the imprecatory nature of it, which imprecatory simply means to curse. And so throughout this psalm, you're going to really find incredibly detailed language on ways that David is praying for his enemies, specifically that they be cursed. In fact, what David is actually praying for here is their death, which is kind of a startling thing if you think about it, because we just, again, don't think of things in terms like this. What he's asking God to inevitably do, though, is to simply rise up and defend him from men. Now, these men are are enemies of David, and so what David wants is that God would actually rise up and kill them. But he wants even more than just their death. He wants their utter humiliation and retaliation for their sins against him and really the wickedness that they're plotting to do. Now, I'm willing to make a bet that most, if not all of you, hear that And you already have this kind of knee-jerk reaction against it as if this is somehow wrong. Now, we tend to think that this is evil in one sense, that that there's a hatred of the wicked expressed in Scripture or a hatred of those who are considered enemies of God simply because we think it's an evil desire to see them be brought to justice, uh, even a merciless and swift justice, if you will. But the reality is that, beloved, justice is the ultimate end of all creation. I mean, that's what all things are hastening towards as we go to that final and great day is we're we're looking forward to the day when true justice is established on earth. Now, the scriptures are simply filled with this type of language. It's all over the place. Obviously, many of you, as I preached through the Minor Prophets, saw this abundantly clearly, right? They're calling for uh, justice within Israel time and again. But we also find that God makes some statements about how he hates the wicked. The psalmist in Psalm 5, verses 4 through 5 says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. No evil can dwell with you. The boastful cannot stand in your presence. You hate all workers of iniquity. Then again in Psalm 11, verse 5, The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence, his soul, being God's soul, hates. And then you also find this type of language expressed by men in the Psalms too, which again throws us for a further loop. You have David in Psalm 26 saying, I hate the assembly of the evildoers and I will not even sit with the wicked. He also says, or I should say his son rather in Proverbs says, an unjust man is abominable to the righteous and he who is upright in the way is abominable to the wicked. So there you can kind of see there's this uh, mutual hatred, if you will, going on. Now, in Psalm 139, we actually find a rather lengthy description of the same kind of sentiment in verses 19 through 24. The psalmist writes there, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. And then he says, Depart from me, therefore, you men of bloodshed, for they speak against you, being God, wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not Hate those who hate you, O Lord, and do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. And then he says this, by the way, and this is where things get really interesting, at least in my mind. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Now, that psalm, by the way, was designed for corporate worship. They're all designed for corporate worship, but this one in particular is to be sung by the whole congregation of Israel. So imagine just coming in here on a Sunday morning and all of a sudden Lena and the band are leading you in this type of a psalm, right? There wouldn't be anything actually wrong with that based on the heart of what Scripture tells us. Now, the reason for that is simply that these types of expressions, that is asking for God to take vengeance upon the evildoer, is all born out of a desire to see God glorified. In other words, it's not this personally vindictive thing, but rather we're looking to see God glorified in the expression, the pure expression of his wrath and vengeance. So when we look at Psalm 35, I want you to really look at this psalm in much the same light as this, because again, David's language is incredibly frank, it's incredibly vivid, and he knocks so hard against what I would call simply the common Christian niceties that we're so prone to think in. Now, what I want to do again today through this psalm, and that's Psalm 35 for those of you who are just walking in, 
is just unfold this reality a bit for you. But especially towards the end, to be able to explain what is its place in the life of the Christian? How are we to think about this? Is this in some way, shape, or form contrary to the call that Christ gives to love our neighbor or to love our enemies? But what I want you to, again, keep in mind throughout all of this is that this psalm and psalms like it are penned by a man the scriptures say is a man after God's own heart. Right? That's what the God himself calls David, is a man after God's own heart. And yet David says, kill my enemies. And so part of what we see in inspired scripture is stuff like this, and we have to just simply be able to rightly understand it, I would argue, in order to uh, rightly practice it, if you will. So as we're looking to this text here, especially as we come to verse 1, we see that, once again, David is just simply pleading for help. Now, we don't know exactly what's going on in his life at this moment. It could be coming off of the heels of Psalm 34, because there's some phrasing here that's identical. But regardless of all of that, we do know he's under attack from his enemies once again. Now, we get a very clear picture of what these guys are actually doing to him all throughout this psalm. But I want you to understand at the get-go, these men are exceedingly wicked, I mean, these aren't guys that have just said some nasty stuff about him on Twitter or something like that. They're not just making up some lies. They are actually trying to kill him. So they, the way that it is described all throughout the psalm is that they plot evil against him. They scheme of trapping him and catching him in this trap. They, they slander his name, his reputation, and everything else. And ultimately, they repay him evil for good. So when he has bad stuff happen to them, they rejoice at that. And he was absolutely contrary to that. And then at the end of it all, they just simply lie to his face and to the whole nation, if you will, and stir up dissension. But again, all of it's designed to get David to die. I mean, that's really their desire in this. So again, these aren't guys who are just uh, giving mean tweets, so to speak. So in every single instance, an accusation, oh, David's actually blameless. He's not done anything wrong here. He's done nothing to deserve what they're doing to him. And so I want you to think of that in mind as we go through the psalm too. He doesn't use this, therefore, to exact his own personal petty vindictive justice. Right? He's not seeking personal vengeance. And that's crucial here because what he's ultimately doing is he's entrusting vengeance to the one who can exercise it appropriately and correctly and with true purity. Now, the reason for this is rather simple. David is, again, a man after God's own heart. And so his primary concern is not that he be justified, although that's part of it, but that God be glorified. That's his primary concern in all of it, is that God be glorified. He recognizes that in the midst of what's going on, the only possible solution he has to his problem is that God would actually rise up and, and help him. And yet again, it's not some vague ask for help. You know, he's not praying as these guys are seeking to kill him. Oh, Lord, if you would just soften their hearts towards me and allow them to see me as a a kind man, one who, who loves them. I'm doing nothing but good for them. No, he says, Lord, I want you to rise up and kill. And again, that's so counterintuitive to how we think, especially as Western Christians. But that's what we're starting to see here in verses one through three. So I want you now to look at, at the text with me. And notice here in verses 1 through 3, he's, he's making petitions. They are a cry for help, but all of it is a cry of help in the midst of warfare. So the imagery here is one of warfare, but of God specifically being the one who battles. So notice again, in verses 1 through 3, he starts asking that Yahweh would take up this buckler and a shield and also to draw the spear and the battle axe. So it's not just defense, right? not just defense, actual weapons here, draw the spear and the battle axe and rise up to fight against those who fight against him. And so the picture is that the Lord would actually rise up and take up these weapons. He would come to David's aid. And what do you do with these weapons? I mean, you kill, right? That's the whole purpose of weapons. But notice it's the Lord himself, he says, is the means of his deliverance. It's not that it's just somehow that they're going to be mighty in battle, but rather the Lord will rescue him from his enemies. The Lord will be the instrument of his salvation in verse 3. In all of it, he's simply expressing this trust that God can do that which he cannot do. I mean, David is utterly powerless to do it, but he also knows he's just not the guy who is enabled by the righteous and holy and just law of God to take vengeance. He can't do that. I would argue, obviously, neither can I or you or anyone else. 
In Leviticus 19.18, and David knows this is in the law of God, right? He says, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the reason for this is that I am Yahweh, right? That's what he says. That's, that's the whole basis of why they can't do this. The Lord is the Lord. And again, in Deuteronomy 32, 35 through 36, he says, vengeance is mine and retribution. He goes on, in due time, their foot will slip for the day of their calamity is near and the impending things are hastening upon them. Why? For Yahweh will vindicate his people and he will have compassion on his servants. Right? That's, again, the basis of it. Yahweh will vindicate his people. He will have compassion on his servants, but that necessitates wrath and vengeance. And so David is actually just appealing to God to do that which God can and should do, that which he's promised to do. In other words, he, he looks at God. He says, I know in your, in your words, you've commanded me not to take vengeance, but that you have promised you will take vengeance. And so will you do that? Will you stand up and take vengeance for me, Lord? And then notice in in verses four through eight, David starts to actually unfold all this with much much greater detail here. And this is where you and I really start to get uncomfortable with his language, right? We start to get uncomfortable with how he prays for his enemies here. And the reason for that is simply that David prays for their downfall, right? He's not asking the Lord to, to save them or bring them to an awareness of their sin. He says he, he wants them to be brought to ruin, to be destroyed, and yet in a very, very specific way, as I'm going to point out now. So first notice in verse 4, what does David do? Right, he asks him, or he asks God in particular of these men, let them be ashamed and be dishonored who seek my life. Let those, who be, or those be turned back and humiliated who devise evil against me. Again, this is not simply something he's asking because he doesn't like them. These are genuinely evil and wicked people who are trying to take his life. They seek to kill him. They're forming plots on how they can bring him to destruction and ruin and inevitably form a coup. And so David just simply asks, hey, look, instead of them succeeding in their plans, God, would you let that fall upon their own heads? Would this be something that causes them to be a thing of ridicule? Now, there's, there's much more going on in the text than simple embarrassment here. He's asking they would be this public spectacle of ridicule and shame, utter humiliation, right? So think of David and Goliath, right? Same, same guy. David goes before Goliath. David's just a young boy at the time, and Goliath is this mighty, huge warrior of the Philistines. Well, what does David do? Right? He, he, as a young boy, kills David with a sling and a stone, but things don't stop there, does it? Well, he goes and he collects Goliath's sword and then he chops off Goliath's head with his own sword. But things don't even stop there. He actually picks up his head and carts it off to Jerusalem because what you do with that is you hang the head in the middle of the city gates that everyone can see what just happened. I mean, that's kind of what's in mind here when you think about shame in the biblical sense. Uh, think of Nebuchadnezzar even, right? He's a Babylonian king. He's an exceedingly prideful and wicked man. And the Lord warns him, and so he ignores the Lord's pleas. And what ends up happening, but he goes and grazes in the field like a goat, right? I mean, you have this, this once mighty king essentially turned into a goat, and the snake fingernails get all long, and he's eating grass. Now, I think of this, and this is just how my mind works. I'm wondering if his, his servants are coming up to him, and they're like, my, my Lord and my liege, what would you have us do? And he can't speak, so he just bleats like a goat, and then goes back to eating some grass, and they're like, okay. But all of it's designed to draw out this idea of shame, right? Here you have a a king over this incredibly mighty nation, and he's brought to open ridicule and shame because rather than being on the throne like he should be, he's out in the field eating grass. Now, he's not using a normal bathroom. He's not showering. He's not doing any of the things that a human being would do. He's literally insane, The idea is that whatever power and prestige that you would have as a king, if you were a king in this time, or when you're being brought to shame, is simply that you would you would lose that. You would look absolutely foolish and powerless. You know, there's other stories of when the Israelites were taken into captivity and the Assyrians or the Babylonians take their the Israelite kings, they take their sons and daughters kill them before them, and then they poke out their eyes. So the literal last thing they see is the death of their kids. I mean that's Absolutely brutal. But that's 
how these guys would have shamed them. So again, there's much more than simply being embarrassment going on here. So he asks, Lord, would you bring them to utter shame, utter ruin? And secondly, in, in verses five through six, we see David asks that this angel of the Lord would do this. Now, again, this came up in Psalm 34, which if you were here for that, um, you know what I said before is that it speaks of this pre-incarnate Christ. Uh, if you were not here when I preached on Psalm 34, please just feel free to go back and listen to that. But in Psalm 34, this is the same angel of the Lord that David describes as the one who encamps around those who fear him. He, he rescues them. Now, we see this again pop up all the other places in, in the Old Testament. But what David's asking for here is, is fairly simple. He's simply going back to what he already spoke of in verses 1 through 3 and saying, Lord, I need you yourself. I need you to rise up and go to battle for me. Pursue my enemies relentlessly. Chase them down, but in real time and real physical presence. May the angel of the Lord, being the pre-incarnate Christ, slay the wicked. That's what he's asking for here. Notice he actually asks that the Lord would blow them away like chaff in the wind. Now, if you don't know what the chaff is, it's simply when you took the grain and you beat it against the threshing floor, the chaff is that useless bit of the husk that would separate from the seed. So you keep the seed, but the chaff gets blown away. So he's saying, let them be blown away like that, right? They're, they're utterly useless in a way. And then he says, let them essentially be those who wander and stumble in the darkness. May their foot slip. So in all of this, just picture this man who is on the run, right? He's being chased down, and no matter what he does to try and hide, the Lord is always one step behind him. He's constantly being tossed around. He's being pushed forward. He's being stumbling. He's stumbling back. He slips on the wet surface of the pavement. And all the while, close on his heels is God himself actually chasing him down so that inevitably he can be brought to utter ruin, that's what he's asking for here. And again, this is all language that we, we shy away from because we're, in one sense, we just don't know what to do with it. <clears throat> then third notice in verses seven through eight, this is what David asks in particular. May they fall into their own trap, essentially. For without cause, they hid their net for me. Without cause, they dug a pit for my soul. That's verse seven. And then again in verse eight, let destruction come upon him unawares and let the net which he hid catch himself. Into that very destruction, let him fall. Now here the cause for David's prayer becomes very, very clear, doesn't it? These men have designed a trap for him. They've devised this and he just simply says, let them fall into it instead. Well, the reason for that is he's not done anything to deserve it, right? That phrase comes up twice, without cause, without cause, it, twice in verse 7. And the reason for that is that he's just simply highlighting the very fact that nothing he's done would warrant what they're doing. And so he prays in the style of proverbial wisdom, right? You've come across this where uh, the wicked or the fool in Proverbs 1 builds his own trap. So he says, let destruction come upon him unawares. Let the net which he hid catch himself into that very destruction, let him fall. Now, we might call that poetic justice, if you will. You know, think about it in a, in a light of, you have some guy just driving around like a maniac on the highway. He passes you by, he almost causes an accident. And then about 100 yards up the road, you see him pulled over by a cop. And you have that kind of inner monologue going on. You're like, all right, justice, right? We've all done it. But it's a lot more serious here, right? These guys genuinely want to kill him. But the principle is the same of what he's saying. He's saying, let the cheaters be cheated. Let the liars be deceived. May those who hasten towards bloodshed meet their own demise. Let them fall into their own trap for me, is what he says. And then out of this then, <clears throat> out of this petition to the Lord, he actually asks or promises to God that he's going to praise him if and when that happens. Notice in verses 9 through 10, he says, And my soul shall rejoice in the Lord. It shall exult in his salvation. Right, so all this is in mind, right? He's just asked, if, if you do all these things, I will praise you. All of my bones will say, Lord, who is like you who delivers the afflicted from him who is too strong for him and the afflicted and the needy from him who robs him? Now, this is the first of three promises to praise God that David gives in this psalm. And it's, it's really rather neat what goes on in the Hebrew here. It might not always carry in the English, but the way that it's written is that it's implicit faith that God will do these things, right? So it's not just that he, he we, we tend to read this in a very American way, 
right? So we read it and we're like, okay, so David's hanging this over God's head in some way. Like, if you do this thing, then I will do this. That's just the opposite of what's actually being said here. And, you know, if you know David, he's going to praise God regardless. But what he's saying here is that, look, if, if this happens, if you deliver me, if you judge the wicked, my praise will be exceedingly great. And the reason for that is because God himself has rescued him. So it's worth noting, David's not simply looking at this and saying he's going to praise God's salvation, though he will. What he's saying is he's going to praise the God of his salvation. Does it see the difference? It's subtle, but it's rather important. He says this in verse 9, if you look down, right? He promises to rejoice in the Lord himself. But then again, in verse 10, he asks the rhetorical question, Lord, who is like you? Well, the obvious answer to that is nobody's like God, right? He's the God who rescues the afflicted. He is the one who rescues the needy in their distress. He is a God who is far stronger than even the strongest of David's enemies. But he is a God of so much more of this than Noel. And, and this is what David knows in his heart of hearts. Right? He, David knows he's a God who sees his children in their need, and he will stand for true justice when men bring forth nothing but injustice. Well, the point of all of this, though, is simply, again, that David's going to rejoice in the salvation of the Lord because it comes from God himself, right? So David's highest delight is God, and therefore, everything that God does, he will praise. And so much so, he says here, he's actually going to feel it in the depths of his bones. He's going to quake with utter praise to God, and he, he won't be able to contain it. So just picture a man that's just bursting forth with praise, Right, so the promise then is that the, if the Lord does such a thing, it will result in the highest magnitude of praise that he can give. Right? And, and the reason for this is simply he knows that his condition is utterly desperate. He sees himself as the afflicted one. He's surrounded by enemies that are far too strong for him. He knows he is the needy man. He's ultimately powerless to do anything about it. But he knows that God can. And not only can God do this, he can do so perfectly. This is hard for us to identify with, I think, in a sense, simply because we're, we're very infrequently at the end of our rope. And, and I, don't, I don't mean that as any kind of slam against anyone here. It's just simply we, we live in a very affluent culture, and it's hard for us to really understand what it feels like to just be at the end of our rope. We face very little opposition to our comfort, but especially to our faith. Right? None of us were staring down the barrel of a gun to get here today. None of us were. We, we may have run out of gas or something like that or blown a tire, and we look at that and we're like, everything is ruinous. But the reality is that David's literal life is on the line here. Now, beloved, that might change in days to come. I, I don't know. It's certainly the reality for the persecuted church. But if you stop and, and think about it as we continue to go through this psalm, I'm, I'm willing to bet that there's going to be things that you identify with David here that you will actually be able to resonate with simply because maybe you've never faced literal death as a result of proclaiming Christ in the States, but surely you've experienced a vindictive person. I mean, how many, you don't have to show hands, but how many of you have just simply met somebody who, no matter what, is plotting against you all the time? The very words you speak are twisted, Right, So you do everything in your power to be a kind person and to show them love and affection and to speak good. And yet they take those very same things and they somehow they twist them into being something that they now use against you. Right? That's, that's what happens to David in this next section here. They, they revile him, they slander him, they mock him, but they ultimately take all the good that he's done and they flip it on its head and use that as a justification to do evil. Now, if you look with me in in verses 11 through 18, this is the next major section of the psalm here. And David moves from a warlike setting to a courtroom setting. So again, look with me at verse 11 here. Notice he writes, malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not even know. And so here David is facing those who they want, again, to bring him down to to ruin. They want to bring them to harm one way or another. And so one of the ways they're going to try and do through is, uh, or do so through is a false witness or an outright lie or slander. Now think of some of the famous court cases that we know in our own country, right? Guys have gone to jail and served a life sentence. They've died in prison or maybe even been executed. And then lo and behold, we find out after the fact, hey, they were innocent. 
That, that doesn't mean the justice system is broken in any sort of way. It just simply means that <clears throat> sometimes these things tend to happen, right? And sometimes it can happen because somebody rose up and they were a false witness. They spread malicious lies and slander, and on the basis of their testimony, somebody landed in jail. And then all of a sudden, after they're dead, that person comes back and says, you know what, it was, it was not true. Where it's broken is that now that person who lied doesn't have to face many consequences, but you know, think about it in, in David's circumstances. Things are much, much worse here. It's similar in one sense, but it's much worse. Now remember, David's under the best legal system that's ever been implemented in the history of mankind. You know, right? He's under the law of Moses. It is the holy and righteous and good standard that God himself has given. And yet, just as the law can be perverted and twisted by people today, this could happen in David's day too. Right, these malicious figures, they, they rise up, they lie, and all for the purpose of punishing David. And I think about that through the minor prophets, right? You had time and again, people are going to court to try and settle a dispute. But what happens is that those who are in seats of power and those who are able to pay a bribe uh, get those who are uh, innocent punished, right? It's the same thing that's happening here. Except David's actually king at this time, so imagine that. But remember, all it takes for David to be killed by stoning is to have two or three witnesses stand up against him. That's it, two to three people. So he tells us that these malicious witnesses, that's plural, so he's already got that going. These guys have risen up against him. They've accused him of things he knows nothing about. And so you can imagine the thing just catches them completely off guard, right? Uh, think of it when you were a little kid, right? I mean, if you had siblings like I did, you, you have a time where all of a sudden she's running to mom and dad and she makes up some concocted story about how you did some evil thing and all of a sudden the wrath of mom and dad is coming down on you and you're like, I didn't even know what the heck I did to deserve this and yet nonetheless you're getting spanked, right? That's kind of what's going on here but of course it's not a spanking, it's literal death. And perhaps you've even found your own words being twisted and used against you and so much so that what you said originally is not what even comes out at the end of it, right? It's so different that's not even remotely close to what you said to begin with. And yet, you have to fight that off somehow. It's worse than that here. Well, the reason is simply that for David, this is exceedingly personal. Right? So look down at the text here. He continues in verse 12, They repay me evil for good to the bereavement of my soul. Literally, my soul is just bereaved. But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting. My prayer kept returning to my bosom. I went about it as though they were my friend or brother. I bowed down mourning as one who sorrows for a mother. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered themselves together. <clears throat> right? These are people that he's cared for in every single way. Every single way. They repay him evil for good, though. Right? Look down again at verse 13. It tells us when they were sick, what did he do? He put on a sackcloth. He, he fasted. And he was in continual prayer for them. Again, verse 14, David counted them as friends, even his own flesh and blood, his family. He mourned for them like as if his mom had died. Right? But look at their response in, in verses 15 through 16. What do they say or what do they do? But at my stumbling, they rejoiced. They gathered themselves together again. The smiters whom I did not know gathered together against me. So some of these guys are people he doesn't even know. You know, maybe he's made treaty with them as king and he's treated them uh, incredibly well, but he's never met them in person, and yet they gather against him. Or some others are rising up to join in the fun, if you will. He says, they slandered me without ceasing. And here's the real kick to the teeth. Like godless jesters at a feast, they gnashed at me with their teeth. God, godless jesters at a feast, they gnashed at me. I think of this. I mean, this is really the most evil type of betrayal you can have, right? I mean, how many of you have been betrayed by a, a friend, one that you would consider a true friend? It's the kind of betrayal that hurts more than anything else. You, you pour your life out to them as if they are your own flesh and blood, and in return, what do they do? But they rip out your heart, they throw it to the ground, they stomp on it, and then for good measure, they say, let's well, light, light this thing on fire. But they laugh about it. They spread all sorts of falsehoods behind your back. It, it makes me think of people that I've seen come and go from this church over the years. You open your home to them, they come in, 
You feed them, you clothe them, you give them much food and drink. You help them out of completely horrendous situations, and I mean horrendous, and your kids even climb on their laps. Treat them as if they're family. And then what happens is they go. But they don't just go quietly. No, that could, that could never happen. They go slandering everything that you've done. They go slandering the church. And if you've been here for any length of time, you, you've seen this as well, beloved. Right? I think of John MacArthur, even. Uh, here's a man who's just seeking to be faithful in the midst of a, an incredibly bleak time. And yet so many of the men that he linked arms with and called brother that he preached with at conferences have all but abandoned him. Right? Men that he would have called brothers and friends or fellow warriors for the sake of the gospel, but they left when the going got tough, when things started to really press down. I think even of the Apostle Paul. Right? He sits in prison. He's, he's writing a letter to young Timothy, and he says, come visit me because the, the faithful ones are tied up doing work. But all the men that I've poured my life into who are not doing a work, they've, they've departed because they've loved this present age. Damas has forsaken me. Beloved, if you've been in the church for any length of time, you're going to see that. You're going to see people who use and abuse not only you, but the entire church. And all the while, you still pour out love. If you're faithful to the call of the gospel, you're going to just simply have that happen. And often what you'll get in return is the same thing that all these others have gotten before you. Think of your Lord. What did Christ do? Now, my suspicions are that we're, we're entering a time where this will be the reality all the more. We're going to continue to see this world just simply fall apart at the seams. And the temptation for many who claim Christ will be to love this present age, to defect from the brethren. I mean, beloved, think of how many people turned in others who didn't have a mask on. Do you really think it's impossible for them to look at you for your Christian faith and say, I will not turn them in? Just for you going about quietly and living peacefully in the land. Think of the church during Soviet Russia's time. Or think of China right now, right? Think of China. Once purported friends and family just simply hand over others to be tortured and to be killed for their faith. Well, beloved, when that sort of thing happens, these psalms will be all the more precious to us. You'll pray just like David does here in verse 17. He just simply says, Lord, how long will you look on? Rescue my soul from their ravages, my only life from the lions. Well, this is a very, very simple plea from David. Rescue me, Lord. Do not wait. There are savage lions circling about me who just want to tear me limb from limb. They only seek my downfall. Right? These were friends and brothers that he counted. And so the only thing he has left to do is just cry out to, to the Lord for mercy. And yet, what do you notice about this? Right? The Lord seems pretty eerily silent to David right now, doesn't he? Right? He's, he's just spent a tremendous amount of time highlighting all the ways he's, he's been blameless, how all the ways that these men have come against him. They've returned evil for him doing good. Things look bleak. He's got witnesses coming up against him, bringing him before the court so they can stone him to death. In spite of this, though, what does David do? He goes back to the one place he can, and he entrusts himself to Yahweh. He makes his case known. He holds by faith that the God who judges all things rightly will do so yet again here. He knows that even, even if all the friends that he has depart from him, he has a true friend in Yahweh. Yahweh will never leave me, he says. And so, my, beloved, my, my question to you in light of that is very, very simple. Do you see God as that for yourself? If you are in Christ, do you see him as your constant friend and companion, that though everyone else may depart, that he will remain? That even if your own spouse, your own children, all your friends, your family, everyone else departs from the faith and turns their back on you, that God 
will not if you are in Christ. Well, that's the one thing you can hold on to in this life with absolute surety. Everything else is designed to fail you, but not that. Nothing else can give you the comfort and consolation you so desperately need every single day of your life, but especially on the days when everyone's your enemy. Right, that's what David's going through here. He's praying for God to give him comfort and consolation. And yet again, he's praying for this to happen through the judgment of those who are seeking to take his life. Well, he knows without a shadow of a doubt that the God who judges all things with impartiality, that is, without respect to who the person is, that regardless of what the malicious slanderers may say, regardless of all the circumstances, that God himself is one who upholds the foundations of truth and justice, and so he will deal with this situation as is needed, whether he lives or dies. So what does he do? Well, he appeals to praise once more, right? There's nothing wrong with him wanting to live. But he promises praise in verse 18. This is a second promise of praise. Look down and see what he says. I I will give you thanks in the great congregation. Again, if you rescue me, if you make their footfall or stumble, I will give you thanks in the great congregation. I will praise you among a mighty throng. A mighty throng. So it's not just David, but the whole congregation is going to praise God for this. It's not going to be just the praise of one man, but everyone in Israel will hear, the, hear of this and sing praises to their God. Again, that's at the heart of what David wants here. That's at the heart of his pleas for help and, and the judgment on the wicked here is that he knows that whatever happens to him doesn't matter so much. He's more concerned about what happens for God. And so he says, look, if this is a rather simple thing. If I get to live, that means more praise for you. If I die... Not only will my own praise be cut short, but the praise of the entire assembly will be cut short. Right? But if you, if you rise and act, O oh Lord, if you kill our enemies, if you stand and deliver, then in the punishing of the wicked, the righteous will rejoice. And that's, that's what all of this is premised on for David here. He wants to see the name of the Lord lifted high. He wants to see God magnified. And again, he, he starts to do this in the next section, even here, as we, as we come now to the third plea that he gives. And you'll see it again when he goes to offer him praise. So verses 19 through 28. Well, as we come to verses 19 through 21, I want you to notice David's plea here begins with a very straightforward request. Do not let those who are wrongfully my enemies... So again, he's done nothing to deserve this. Do not let those who are wrongfully my enemies rejoice over me. Another way of saying, don't let them be victorious, nor let those who who hate me without cause wink maliciously. Remember, David's enemies, they're fixated on bringing him down. That's all they want to see. They have have this profound hatred for the man. And so he again emphasizes, look, they have no reason to do any of this. He knows in every single way that they can, they have come against him. And so they're very public with their accusations, right? You can just kind of put yourself in his shoes for a second here. They're openly and flagrantly lying about him in public. And you see that in verses 20 through 21, right? So just look down again. It says, they do not speak peace, but they devise deceitful words against those who are quiet in the land. They've opened their mouth wide against me. They say, aha, aha, our eyes have seen it right? There's this this snide and derisive way you can kind of picture them doing it. They make up these vindictive lies on the one hand. They know exactly what they're doing, by the way. So none of it's like they're pretending as if this might be true. They want them to get them killed. But then they also are finding, hey, a lot of these people are actually believing the lies that we're sowing about David. This is great. So they, they turn the heart of the people against David and they give this little sideways glance to him and just wink. Right? I mean, you guys, I'm sure, have seen somebody do that in some way. Not in that exact circumstance, maybe, but you don't have to say a single word to him to get the idea across, right? Your body language communicates everything. Everything. They, they are spreading these lies, and then they just look at him and give that malicious little smile and wink. They got him right where they want him. Oh, David, we've got you pegged. He knows it. 
They know it. There's no pretenses of what's actually happening here. They know their lies. They don't care. They want him dead. And yet the amazing thing about this is that the Lord in his sovereignty was pleased to use even this whole situation and this verse to speak of a greater reality that we find in the New Testament, where John, the Apostle John picks, about, or picks this up to speak of Jesus in, in John 15. You don't need to turn there, but in, in John 15, verse 25, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and this is a very famous passage we all know. He says, look, the world is going to hate you because they hate me, right? We all know that passage. He says, no slave is greater than his master, and when he speaks of this, he's, he draws out the fact, though, that he's done many mighty works, miraculous deeds and miracles that no other man has ever done before him and no will ever do after him. So he's performed these incredible miracles. He's taught with divine authority. He's revealed that God's salvation is near. He is the Messiah, right? And then he says, these things have all taken place to fulfill the prophecy that they have hated him without cause. And he's speaking of himself there. Right, so he refers back to this psalm, and he says, look, that everything that I do is simply fulfilling this prophecy that the Jews are going to hate me, that they hate me without cause. In other words, it's David's situation all over again, but to the par excellence, if you will, the, the highest example in a far greater way. You know, Christ is the true and the better David, right? He is God with us. In every single way that he's ever acted, he has done so completely blamelessly. He's not sinned ever, right? He, he's only done which is that for the benefit of his people. And yet what happens, but that many of the Jews despised him, right? They hated him. They devised evil schemes against him. They wanted to seize him. And they've actually sought to seize him many times and to kill him, but they can't lay their hands on him just yet, right? And the text simply says, it's not because they didn't know who he was, it's not because they misunderstood what he was saying. It wasn't somehow in their mind that they're like, okay, this guy really is committing blasphemy. We have to kill him because the law says that. No, they knew he was the Messiah. Jesus says that the reason why they did all of these things is because they hated him and they hated the Father. They hated him and they hated the Father. That's, I mean, that's it's just incredible, right? It's and then you go back to your text here in Psalm 35, and you can see that David's plight is much the same thing. But what it does here, what, what this is all getting us to, to really see is that there's something far greater in mind than, than David's suffering and pain, and even our own innocent suffering and pain, because Christ himself suffered innocently, right? He was led to the cross, and he died an excruciatingly painful death, and all the while people slandered him, and yet he was vindicated in the end, wasn't he? When he rose on the third day, he triumphed over the forces of evil and these wicked men that were scheming against him. And that's, that's really the beautiful reality at, at heart here is that even as Christ has been vindicated, if you are suffering innocently, you will be vindicated. We will all be vindicated on that last day if we are in Christ. Right, so no matter what malicious slander people might give us, no matter what vindictive lies they might seek to bring us down by, no matter what happens with any of that, we can know that just as Christ was vindicated, that we will be vindicated, right? And, and David, I think, actually was aware of this in some sense, maybe not to the full extent we are, but I think he understood the reality that, well, God will vindicate me. God vindicates himself, right? His own name must be for the power and glory but I think he struggled to grasp a hold of that reality in some sense too. Well, the reason why is, I mean, look with me just now at, at 22 through 26. Right? I'll, I'm going to give just a couple of comments and then we'll read some of it. But David knows that though the lies of these men are, are spreading far and wide, God is, has seen it. Right? He knows that God has seen his innocence. And therefore, he simply asks that once again, God would rise and defend him and bring these wicked men to shame. Notice in verses 22 through 23 that it's in light of this very fact that he knows that God sees the truth of the matter, that he calls him to act. So, so picture it as a court scene, if you will. David is on trial. Virtually everyone believes the lies against him. And he knows that he's basically already guilty in their eyes. Only Yahweh can vindicate me now. Only the Lord can come to my defense. Only the Lord can, can stand and vouch for what's actually true and yet the painful reality for David here, at least, is that he's, in some sense, he says, 
it doesn't appear as if God's taking a stand anytime soon. That the reason he asks the Lord not to be silent is that so far the voice of the wicked prevails. He cries out, O Lord, do not keep silence. Do not be far from me. Stir up yourself and awake to my right and to my cause, my God and my Lord. Judge me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness. And do not let them rejoice over me. Do not let them say in their heart, aha, our desire. Do not let them say we have swallowed him up. Let them be ashamed and humiliated for rejoicing at my distress. Let them be clothed in shame and dishonor for magnifying themselves over me. Right here's a man in utter desperation. He, he knows the Lord sees him in his innocence, and yet somehow God has not acted just yet. He's seemingly absent the whole time. He knows only Yahweh can rescue me, but based on how things are continuing to play out, it, it looks pretty bleak so far, doesn't it? And this is perhaps one of the hardest realities for us when we're in the midst of a trial, isn't it? I mean, are there not times where in the midst of just much hardship and heartache, you have thought, the Lord is nowhere near me, right? I I pray and I pray and I pray, but God seems to have just shut his ears to my cries. Why? Why are you so far from me, Lord? Right, You're, you're hoping for some sort of relief, but no matter what you do, you're just getting slammed back underneath the waves. You bring up your, hair, your head for air once more and you get slammed once again and start choking on the water. You, you start to despair. You become hopeless and perhaps you even become embittered. But beloved, the Lord sees. Just as he saw Hagar in the wilderness with Ishbel and he, he cared for her and for him, the Lord sees. This is a beautiful reality for those of you who are in Christ. He already knows if you're going to suffer, let alone as you're in the midst of your suffering. There are are no secrets before him. Again, think of verse 19, right? What did it talk about with Christ? Christ is this one who is picked, it's picked up in the New Testament. Christ is the one who suffers under unimaginable cruelty, the hands of wicked men, but he also says, what of us? that we must suffer, right? We will suffer because no servant is greater than his master. So make no mistake, we're going to suffer in this life if we are his child. But the Lord still sees it. Did not the Lord see the sufferings of Christ? Beloved, if he saw Christ's sufferings and you're in Christ, what does that mean for you? Look, even if things end on a completely horrible note. If it's just pain and misery and even death because of the wicked, the Lord sees it, right? We get a a taste of this in Revelation. You have the saints who are crying out because they've been martyred. And what do they say? But, oh Lord, vindicate us. How long will we wait before you pour out your vengeance? Beloved, in his own timing, God will vindicate. In his own timing, God will make right no matter what, though, on, on that great and final day, you and I will simply praise among the great throng of God's people of all his just and glorious ways. And this is what brings us, again, back to 27 through 28, the final two verses where the Lord, or I should say where David, once again promises to praise God. Notice again, David's primary concern is, is the glory of Yahweh. His desire is that the people will magnify God and that he continue to live simply so that he can praise God all day long, right? That's at the heart of everything. He says, let me live so I can praise you all day long. Oh, that's so contrary to how we think, isn't it? We just want the trial to end so it can end, right? We're like, Lord, let, let me live so I can live, <laughs> right? I mean, that's just how we think. But not David. He looks at this and he says, this is an opportunity where God gets all the more praise and glory, This is where I can magnify the name of the Lord. And again, he's not speaking of the simple fact that he'll be delivered from all of his troubles. I mean, that's in mind here. Don't mistake me. But what's also in mind is that David knows the Lord gets the praise and the glory for the destruction of the wicked. And that's where we don't like to think like that. Again, David knows, in other words, that even God's wrath and his vengeance are a beautiful thing. Right? If, we're, if we're on the right side of it, we can, we can appreciate that. But when we start to think of that applied 
across the whole, we have a real hard time thinking that way, don't we? Now, I'm sure many of you are just simply wondering, what do we even make of all this? Right? We're, we're Christians. We have the full New Testament. And we're like, what do we do with these things? Because this is so far different than that phrase you and I often hear, which is that God loves the sinner but hates the sin, right? Well, let me just clear that one up for you. That one's utterly false. God hates the sin and God hates the sinner. He hates both. So again, what do we do with all of this? What do we do with imprecatory psalms? Can we pray them, right? Well, for starters, it's important for us to know this is not just an Old Testament reality. Right? The New Testament re- actually speaks to this as well. You know, Paul talks about this man named Alexander the coppersmith. I don't know how many of you are familiar with that man. And he talks about this guy in the book of 2 Timothy. We know that this guy, Alexander the coppersmith, is vigorously opposed to the gospel, Paul says. Right? We don't get really a clue as to what he's doing against Paul or how often he's doing it. But what we do know is that Paul just simply says of this man, he did me much harm. He did me much harm. And then he says, but the Lord will repay him for his deeds. Oof. That's an apostolic death sentence, right? I mean, that's, that's holy writ saying, like, this is an indicative. You remember what an indicative is, right? A statement of fact or reality. The Lord will repay him for his deeds. There's no way to mince words with that. The apostle just simply says, he did me much hard. The Lord will repay him. The Lord will take vengeance. That's a statement of fact. Notice he doesn't ask Timothy to pray for him, for that man. Right? Here he has his young disciple, and he doesn't say, pray for this man's salvation, that he would repent and uh, that he would be added to the church. He says, the Lord will repay him. You, Timothy, watch out for him. Paul likewise speaks of this reality in Romans 12. He, he commands the church at Rome. He says, listen, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Well, he goes on to say that if we do good to our enemy, like if we feed them, if we give them drink, uh, the reason why we do this is so that we will, what? Heap burning coals upon their heads. Heap burning coals upon their heads. Beloved, what do burning coals do? They burn, right? I mean, it's pretty simple. It's they burn. The way he speaks of all of this, though, is that by overcoming evil with good, you are, in fact, as Pastor Matt Henry has said it before, you are building up your maximum treasure in heaven as you are building up their maximum punishment. That is so contrary to how we think. That is so contrary to how we think. He says, look, if you take your own vengeance, you leave no room for the wrath of God, right? That's, that's the worst it will get. But if you entrust vengeance to the Lord, the one who is able to execute it with righteousness and justice and holiness and goodness, when it gets poured out, it will actually be done in an appropriate measure for one, because it will be done without sin. But for two, it will be poured out in all the greater measure as you have sought nothing but their good the whole time. They have no reason to be your enemy, in other words, because you've done everything in your power to show them love and mercy and kindness. Well, then we also get this in in the ethics of Christ in Matthew 5 in a similar way. He expresses much the same. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now that second half, by the way, is nowhere found in scripture. Nowhere does it say hate your enemy. So evidently, this is a popular saying during the time of Christ, but he continues on to say, if I say to you, love your enemies uh, and pray for those who persecute you, and many of us simply stop right there and we say, see, no place for the imprecatory psalm in today's world. But Christ actually continues, right? So he says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. It gives a purpose. And he goes on, why? Because he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain upon the just and the unjust, or the righteous and the unrighteous. So in other words, God still cares for even the wicked. God still shares a general love and benevolence to them. And so he says, look, 
you need to go and do this. If your heavenly Father does this, how much more so should you, who are wicked? But we also know that that general kindness does not last forever, does it? At the end of all days, what happens? Judgment and wrath, right? You will either go to be away with Christ or you will have wrath poured out on you for all eternity. Well, here's where it gets interesting where Christ continues all the more. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same, right? So all he's saying here is, look, you're, you're no better than the rest of this world. The people you despise, the tax collectors, the Gentiles, you certainly don't reflect the character of your heavenly father if all you're doing is fixated on how you can get your own petty form of vindictive vengeance. He says even, what reward is there for you, Right? Now, we tend to get tripped up on that whole aspect of things because it presumes innocence. That's, that's my point with all this. It presumes an actual innocence here, right? David could say in the midst of this psalm, Lord, judge me according to your righteousness, right? So we tend to look at imprecatory psalms and we're like, hey, we've got another one to add in our arsenal. But I would say, can you pray that first? Right? This is where we tend to fail, we, we want to return tit for tat. We do evil for evil. We exact some petty form of righteous or what we think is righteous indignation, but we don't obey our Lord in simply doing them good. But beloved, when you are innocent in your suffering, when you're actually doing these things justly and doing them with a good heart and, and a desire to see God's name magnified through it, God promises to take vengeance. There's nothing wrong with that fact. When you know that, it actually frees you up to love those who hate you. It frees you to do that. It might bring you much agony and pain. You might struggle all the way through it because you're wrestling with all the implications of your own heart and mind. But the reality is that you will have your reward from your heavenly father, especially if you do them good. But then he says they will also have their reward. That's a desirable thing for us, at least the way that the text presents it. And that's really the underlying reality behind all of this, right? God is the one who takes vengeance. We are held to a different standard. We're not God, and so we don't get to take our own vengeance. We don't get to sin against somebody just because they've sinned against us. What we do get to do, though, is entrust all of that to the one who drudges righteously and the one who promises to pour out revenge or his own vengeance with complete equity and fairness. Beloved, if somebody sins against you, you need to be crazy enough to actually believe that. You need to be crazy enough to believe that you should, you, now this is the perfect time for me to love that person and to do their good because God will repay you. The text says, you want heavenly treasure? You want the downfall of the wicked? Do them much good. Do them much good. But none of that somehow erases the fact that the Lord promised to do only that which he can do and that we shouldn't somehow desire that. None of that means we can't, in other words, ask him to intervene and to take vengeance, to pour out his justice and wrath on the, on the wicked. Beloved, we have many Alexander the Coppersmiths in this age. I and mean, trust me, we do. All you need to do is root around on social media a little bit to find them. If you don't believe me in that, just ask me. I'm happy to send you a bunch of different comments I've gotten over the years where people have literally wished my death. Do you understand that there are many people out there that literally want to see you dead simply for naming the name of Christ? But as my friends that are cops can attest, the only reason why there's not more violence and bloodshed is simply because they're afraid of the punitive consequences of it. If you lift some of those, what would happen? Just, just think about that. If you lift some of those things, what do you think would happen? There's the reason why the movie The Purge is a huge success, right? If you don't know what that is, that's okay. But the reality behind it is that people, they would love to take vengeance if they could. But the Lord says, not for you. You know, we look at all of this, and I, I think the reason that we, we struggle with imprecatory psalms is that we're embarrassed by the wrath of God. I think we're embarrassed by it. We have a very skewed, Americanized understanding of the Christian faith where we pretend like God doesn't actually have enemies, that the sin of men is not exceedingly sinful, as the scriptures say. 
You know, perhaps you've got some people that might be loud, but they would never do that here, we think. People are getting their heads chopped off all the time around the world because they name the name of Christ. Don't think that could never happen here. Again, we look at verses like Ephesians 6.12, which says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, and we somehow think that 1 John 5.19 doesn't also apply, that the whole world is in the lap of the evil one. Again, our, our aim, our job is to love them, to pray for them, to give them the gospel and plead with them. But we do so knowing that no matter what, no matter how you stretch it, wrath and justice must be poured out. No matter what. Right? It's either going to be met through the wrath of God being poured out upon Christ for the forgiveness of their sins in their place, or justice will be met simply because now that wrath is going to be poured out upon them because they've refused Christ. But make no mistake, it still has to come. There's, there's no avoiding it. And yet the way that scripture attests to this is that it's a beautiful reality. It's a beautiful thing. It's a pure expression of God's holy and righteous and good wrath. Three times David promises to magnify the name of the Lord if this happens. Three times, not just him, but everyone. He says the throng of God's people will magnify or make great the name of the Lord if you do this, O Lord. If you destroy them, they will praise your mighty name. They will show you to be how great you truly are. What that tells us in the end is that either way, God gets the glory, beloved. God gets the glory, no matter how you stretch it. God's name will either be praised simply because we have seen his mercy and his grace and his kindness to us in Christ, and that will rebound for all eternity, or God will get the praise and the glory and the fame of his name that he is due as he pours out righteous and holy and just anger and wrath upon the sinner for all eternity. Beloved, part of what we will praise God for in all eternity is that very reality. As a final word, this psalm, this reality of vengeance, if you're not in Christ, speaks to you. And I don't mean that in any kind of harsh or nasty way. My, my point is simply that this is a very startling and vivid language. This is horrifying if you really think about what's being said here. The reality is that if you're not in Christ, David's words of let the angel of the Lord pursue them with a fiery vengeance, let their way be dark and slippery so that they may fall, that their deeds will be returned upon their own head. That applies to you if you are not in Christ. Now think about that. If you're a child and you're scheming against the ways of your parents right now, just so that way when you get out of the home, you can do whatever it is that you want to do, that's you, if you're an adult and if you're not in Christ, that's, that's you. That was me before I came to Christ. Beloved, it, Scripture just plainly tells, them, tells us we are enemies of God. We are children of wrath without Christ. This psalm, if we're not in Christ, speaks to us. But for those who are in Christ, it still speaks to you in some way. And what I mean by that is simply that these are appropriate things to have in your prayer. I think of the evils of abortion. 60 million plus babies in the U.S. alone. 60 million plus. And then think of everything else that you know goes on in this world. Beloved, I don't know if we're going to head this way or not in terms of genuine open persecution in the church, but if it does... These things will be an exceedingly painful and sober, but also beautiful means of comfort and peace to you. And I think that's probably where we struggle with these things the most, is that we, we live in a very cushy world. But when you're legitimately seeing the, you know, your children be killed before your eyes simply for professing Christ, you're seeing as the Israelites did, where the Babylonians come in and, and take your women and put them into slavery. You're seeing that old men are being killed in the streets. When you're seeing all these different things, this great wickedness, 
you have no recourse but to hope in the fact that God sees all of it and will take vengeance. Because it's not like you can do anything about it. You're powerless. When you see the great atrocities of what Hitler did, do any one of you think that what, what his outcome was was not good, righteous, and just? Even when you think of eternal punishments, like we would not wish that upon our worst enemies, right? But at the same time, do you ever think that he didn't deserve that? Beloved, either way, in the end, God gets the glory and the praise. Salvation or judgment, God gets the praise. His name will be magnified and no man will ever thwart that. It just simply can't happen. God gets the praise in the end. May we be content with that as David was. Well, let's pray. Father, I thank you for this text and for the Psalms. There's so much here that forces us to grapple with our own sin and to grapple with the reality of your righteous and holy and just and good standard that one day you will judge the heavens and the earth and create all things new. And yet, in the midst of that is a terrifying time of judgment. So I pray that we would be those who endure that we would not be those who in 10 years' time simply defect from this faith because we have loved this present age, but that you would cause in us uh, strength and a steadfastness that we might win this race with the utmost urgency and care. Pray that we would pay careful attention to our own walk, but I pray especially, Father, that we would look upon the evil of this world and simply understand just how truly evil it is in your sight. You do not wink at sin. You do not look upon all these things with anything but a profound hatred. And yet you are exceedingly patient. You are exceedingly patient, Father. I pray that we would not trample upon that patience, that the world would not trample upon that patience. We would be faithful and bold to give the gospel to those we know are perishing because we know that you will not endure in patience forever. But I pray, Father, that we would be content as you are content that we be content in the exercising of your vengeance, knowing that this is actually a, a good and righteous and just thing and that we would praise you, Father. We pray these things as these people go home this week and praise you for your mighty name. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.